Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Roush. And I'm Jeremy. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Yeah, hope you all had a fantastic 2020. And a great Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. I know that... It, it was, was a pretty rough year. It was a rough year, and we all deserve to take some time off, relax. We actually had a crazy end of our year, yes. <laughs> Christmas time. Yes. So, I hope you guys <laughs> had a good Christmas, though. Yes. And we're gonna we're gonna try again. We're we're starting over in 2021. Yeah. I mean, Corona's still here. The election is somehow still happening still going on (laughs) as we're recording this the georgia senate runoff elections are currently happening yeah so we're we're bringing some baggage but we (laughs) we, we're trying to start as fresh as we possibly can right and to do that we are bringing you our first new episode of 2021 awesome so i have presidential trivia jeremy did hang up his presidential poster, president poster, but he hung it up on the other side of the room. Yes. So he might have to like get up, get up and go look at it. Right. But the presidential trivia for this week is other than George Washington, which was the only president to run unopposed? Ooh. I mean, did did anybody really compete with Reagan? Well, <laughs> That's not what I mean. Like an organized, <laughs> an organized uh, nominee from a political party, <laughs> and like one with like a real shot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Not just like some random guy that decided to make up his own party. Mm, John Adams. No. But I will tell you the answer at the end of this episode. Oh, man. So you got to stay tuned. My record's not getting any better for <laughs> <No>. 2021. <laughs> Do you want to start over for 2021? I, I, can I? I mean, you're zero for one now for 2021. <laughs> okay. Yes. Let's reset the record. Okay. <laughs> All right. First episode of 2021. This is a... Uh, it's got a lot of lawyer stuff in it, Jeremy, so I hope you're oh, I hope you're ready. David Smith Terry was born in Christian County, Kentucky on March eighth, eighteen twenty three. In eighteen twenty four, David and his family bought and moved to a large cotton plantation in Hines County, Mississippi. In eighteen thirty five, David's parents divorced and David's mother took him and his three brothers to Texas, where they lived on a different cotton plantation that was about 25 miles west of Houston. David's mother died the next year, so the responsibilities of the plantation were left to David and his older brother, Frank, who were 12 and 16 years old, respectively. Nice. A ripe old age to be taken over the, the family, family farm. farm. Yeah. That same year, Colonel Travis and his 180 soldiers, including Colonel Davy Crockett and Colonel James Bowie, were defeated at the Alamo. Uh. When word of what the Texas newspapers were calling the massacre at the Alamo reached David's plantation, David decided that he needed to join the fight at 13 years old. Yeah, like any 13-year-old would do. Right. Apparently, David was tall and big for his age, but still, he's 13 years old. What grade are you in at 13? You're like an 8th grader. Yeah. 7th, 8th grader. I can't imagine any 8th grader that I want in, in my in army. fighting a war? <laughs> in today's day and age. I feel right. like back then, like when your life expectancy was maybe an eighteen lot shorter. Maybe in 1800s, 13 Texas 13-year-old. Yep, exactly. Yep. <laughs> Not an 1800s New York 13-year-old. No. It has to be a Texas one. Yep, yep, exactly. So David joined Sam Houston's forces in time for the battle at San Jacinto. During the battle, the Texans' battle cry was, Remember the Alamo! Mm -hmm. During the battle, a Mexican officer used his saber to hit David in the head, which caused a nasty scalp wound. But David took his bowie knife, just like any real Texan, and he shoved it into the Mexican officer's heart. Jeez. At 13 years old. Yeah. 
Mexican General Santa Ana was taken prisoner during the battle, which ultimately led to a treaty being signed that granted Texas its independence from Mexico. After the war, David returned to the plantation and continued to run it with his brother until 1841 when he decided to work as a law student under his uncle, Colonel Hadley. Hmm. So I just kept seeing Colonel Hadley. I don't know if his first name was Colonel or if he was a colonel and just his first name just wasn't written down. Yeah. I don't know. The book and the book I was reading like was like published in like 1892 Oh, really? Yeah. So They just referred to him as just Colonel, Colonel Hadley. Hadley. So I'm yeah. just assuming that's what everybody called this lawyer. He had, he had no first name. No. Yeah. <laughs> he was the Colonel. The Colonel. Like Colonel Sanders. <laughs> not a real Colonel. No. Well, he might have been. allegedly not a real Colonel. <laughs> right. So In the Kentucky Fried Chicken Army. <laughs> so David hardly ever studied, but he seemed to be a fast learner by just observing his uncle practice. So, like, this back in the day, there wasn't really law schools or, like, for the most of the people to become a lawyer, you basically just studied under a lawyer. An until Yeah, until that lawyer felt that you were ready yeah. to become a lawyer. And then he, like, vouched for you. He's like, yeah, this, this guy's good. He can he Usually can it was, law. like, three or four other lawyers that, like, met you, asked questions, and if they all agreed that you could become a lawyer, you did. Yeah. yeah. It was a very elitist. Yeah. Well, it was also the time, though, that you could... uh read like one law book and be like i am a lawyer and people would be like legit that's legit or or like you took a piece of or like you took a a wooden suture needle and put stitches in somebody and you're like i am a doctor yeah the the same standards the same standards for doctors were at this time yeah you could literally just call yourself whatever you want and people like okay you're Mm -hmm. a lawyer you're Mm -hmm. a doctor Mm mm-hmm so within two years of working for his uncle, David was allowed to start practicing for himself. David opened up his own law office in Galveston, Texas, soon after being admitted to the bar. His biggest case happened when he represented a rich widow and kidnapped the corrupt sheriff who had stolen about $73,000 worth of gold from her. He's a good lawyer. <laughs> wow. We'll say. He'll, he'll do a lot for his clients. I'll say. <laughs> When he heard about gold being discovered in California, David decided to head west. He arrived in California in December of 1849. He tried to mine in Calaveras County, but he never found much of anything, so he decided to instead open up a law office in Stockton. <laughs> well, I'll do what I know. Back back in the days before California was more difficult to get into the bar. Yeah. That's pretty pretty crazy nowadays. In 1852, David visited his family in Mississippi, and while he was there, he married a family friend named Cornelia Runnels. They returned to Stockton as a married couple, where Cornelia became very popular in social circles and helped elevate David Terry's social and professional status there. Hmm. Apparently, like, he was a good lawyer, and he was very honest and everything, but he wasn't much of a... People person? People person. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm your Cor- I'm your Cornelia. You are my Cornelia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the smart one. You're the social one. Yes. You yes. help me meet people. Thank you. You know what I mean. <laughs> yes. We know our places in this in this marriage yeah. by now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying you're not smart. I'm just yeah yeah the yeah smart sure one. sure okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here, not- give me your shovel okay. <laughs> David became known for his hot temper, which probably mm. also didn't help with the whole people being a people person thing. Yeah, yeah. During court in 1853, David began cross-questioning the witness. David asked the witness if he had ever been indicted in the court, which the witness replied, yes, sir, and you caused me to be indicted. But the indictment was null prost, mm. which means that it was just thrown out. David then said, What's that you say? Answer my question and nothing else. David asked again if the witness had ever been indicted. And the witness gave his same exact answer as before. Yes, but you indicted me. And it basically didn't hold up. Yeah. That is not what David wanted to hear. Then David jumped across the table where he had been sitting, drew his bowie knife, and began cutting away at the witness stand with the knife. The judge and sheriff had to pull David away from the witness. Cutting the stand or cutting the person? I think he was like, I think 
the witness stand was like literally between him and the witness. Mm-hmm. And so he started cutting the witness stand before he could get to the witness. Hmm. And then he was pulled back before he could stab the witness. Yeah, probably not going to look very good for yourself in front of a jury. No. No. That's not, it's really not what you want to do to convince. It's not good uh, court demeanor. No. Behavior. But. It didn't really matter. He, he won. Did, no, I, actually, I don't know. He's if he a great won, lawyer. If he won the case, but he was a great lawyer, and he kept getting <laughs> clients. <laughs> he kept getting clients. And They're like, I want the guy who's going to pull the knife on the dude in the witness the stand. The guy that <laughs> kidnapped a corrupt sheriff and pulled the knife on, at the guy in the witness stand. Yeah. That guy. Want, I want that guy to be my lawyer. Yeah, yeah. And in 1855, David was elected to the California Supreme Court in a special election to fulfill the seat that was open due to Justice Alexander Wells' death. Hmm. Very untimely death, it seems. <laughs> I think the guy was actually old. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think David killed him. During the same elections in which David was elected, it became glaringly obvious that there was some serious fraud happening in the elections of San Francisco. A group was put together called the San Francisco Committee of Vigilance that focused on dissolving political corruption within the city. It was like a citizen committee. Mm -hmm. David was not fond of non-elected officials taking the law into their own hands. When one of their prisoners, a man named James Yankee Sullivan, committed suicide after being terrorized by the committee, David began to issue writs of habeas corpus, demanding that the committee produce two other prisoners, Billy Mulligan and Martin Gallagher, who had been arrested for being shoulder strikers and election bullies. Hmm. The committee simply ignored David's writs. David's friend and ally, Governor J. Neely Johnson, declared San Francisco to be in a state of insurrection and commanded William T. Sherman to enlist new men into the militia to fight against the committee. Hmm. Sherman was able to enlist around 500 loyal men, while the committee had around 5,000. Ooh, those are not good odds. No, they are not. And (laughs) Sherman knew that, and he was just, like, not excited about this job. He's like, are you sure, Governor? Yeah. (laughs) Do you, do you know how many we have? Yeah. Do you know how many they have? Do you see that's an extra zero on yeah. the number of people that they have yeah. that we have? Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. We yeah. got a lot more. Governor Johnson tried to sneak a shipload of federal arms into San Francisco that would be dispersed to his militia units. Mm-hmm. The committee found out about the arms and ordered a seizure of the firearms. Oh, gosh. Sink it. Just sink yeah. it. <laughs> David Terry was now done with the committee and decided to go to San Francisco and put an end to this himself, despite a lot of people being like, what are you going to do Him about and it? his Bowie knife. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, he got on a horse with his Bowie knife. He was like, I will solve it. And everybody's like, what? And his, yeah. If William T. Sherman can't, you can't. Yeah. When David arrived- The guy and- they named the Sherman tank after? <laughs> yeah. Come on. When David arrived- how, in- how do you not see this? That's what everybody was saying. The guy that they named the Sherman tank after- <laughs> You can't do it. You can't. Do they? Are they going to name a tank after you? I don't think so. <laughs> when David arrived, also just a, sl- a slight uh, aside, the tank <laughs> was not created until much later. Yes. When David arrived in San Francisco, he met with friends there to see what he could do to put an end to the committee's hold in San Francisco. In which his friends said, "Nothing. There's literally nothing you can do here. You wasted your time." coming here. Mm-hmm. While meeting with his friends, a man named Reuben Maloney came to seek refuge with them. He wanted he was wanted by the committee as a witness to testify about the events that occurred during the arms seizure on the ship. Mm. When Maloney failed to appear before the committee, a police officer named Sterling A. Hopkins was sent to retrieve him. Hopkins and his men arrived at the armory Maloney and David were staying at and produced an arrest warrant for Maloney. David told Hopkins that he was a California Supreme Court judge and no illegally constituted tribunal would be able to exercise such an unlawful power in his presence. So can I just pause for a moment? You know, in in Parks and Recreation, when Ron Swanson pulls out the... The note that says, says, I can do this. Well, no, when he's like, do you have a permit? He's like, yeah, I have a permit right here. And then it just says, I can do whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I imagine this like committee. That's exactly what this committee is. Warrant yeah. wrote like for an arrest warrant. What they wrote as on their arrest warrant was like, 
we're the committee. We do whatever we want. Yeah, well, and that's the thing is like that's why this upsets David Terry so much. He's literally been elected to be the law of California, essentially Enf- enforce, enforce the law. The law. Yeah, and yeah. these people, well, not enforce, but yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And these people are like, well. We weren't elected, but we do that now. Here, yep, yep. get out of here. <laughs> yeah, judgey judge. Yeah. Um, Hopkins did leave, but he soon returned with reinforcements. Hopkins tried to push past David to get to Maloney, but David pulled out his pistol to try to stop him. Hopkins tried to wrestle the gun away from David, and an accidentally discharged. Thinking that Hopkins had just tried to shoot him, David pulled out his Bowie knife and said, Damn you, if it is kill, take that, and shoved his knife all the way into Hopkins' neck. Yikes. Hopkins did escape from David, and word was sent to the committee headquarters about what had happened. In less than an hour, 1,100 of the committee's armed men surrounded the armory that David and his friends were in. Hmm. Didn't take long. Not looking good for you. No. I don't know why you wouldn't leave after that little incident. I think there was already, like, men outside, and then it just grew, and then they were just... Like, oh. Oh, well. That was... That sucked. All of the men inside of the armory laid down their arms and surrendered to the committee. Because what else were they going to do? Thanks, David. Thanks for coming up here. Mm -hmm. You really helped us out. (laughs) Thanks a lot. really de-escalated the situation. (laughs) David was promptly taken to the committee's headquarters and imprisoned. The committee was not sure what to do with David. They couldn't try him for murder because while Hopkins barely hung on to life, he did not die. However, they did not want to release him because if they were ever arrested and brought to trial before the Supreme, before the California Supreme Court, then David would be their judge. The committee tried to get David to resign his seat on the Supreme Court bench, but David said he would rather die than be dishonored. After spending over a month being in Being imprisoned by the committee, David was found guilty of resisting arrest by a vigilante officer and of assault. His sentence was to have his verdict read to him and be strongly advised to resign his position with the Supreme Court. And a stern talking to. (laughs) We would really like it if you would quit your job. Because when this all goes south, because we know it will, clearly we don't have faith in our own efforts. Yeah. David was released at 2 a.m. and immediately boarded a riverboat to Sacramento. Feeling like they had accomplished all they wanted to do, the vigilante committee disbanded days later and marked the occasion with a parade. I don't know if they were just, like, really that scared of David, Terry, like... Coming back with more Bowie knives? Yeah. (laughs) They're like, all right, well, that's it, guys. Did you see how far he stuck that Bowie knife (laughs) in the Hopkins neck? Yeah. Uh, this isn't a good idea right, anymore. Guys. Like, they were a huge committee, like 5,000 people. Yeah, to 500. Yeah. Like, all right, we're over it. We'll have a parade, but this we're, we're not doing this anymore, guys. Yeah. And back in the days before California had 40 million people. That's a lot of people. 5,000 people is a pretty good... It's a pretty good chunk of people. Yeah. And I mean... They were technically disbanded, but still, like, they still had a lot of influence over San Francisco, and Mm -hmm. a lot of the people that had been in the committee took political positions in San Francisco. David returned to the California Supreme Court, where he then became the fourth chief justice of California, starting on September 18, 1857. Mm. In 1859, the California Democratic State Convention was held, and David was extremely upset to find that Warner Cope had been nominated over himself for his seat on the California Supreme Court. David blamed the U.S. Senator from California, David Broderick. Though David Terry and David Broderick were both Democrats, they represented two very different factions of the Democratic Party. Sure. Terry was part of the Chivalry Democrats that were pro-slavery. Mm. You know, he's grown up on cotton farms in the South. Mm-hmm. He brought, he actually brought slaves with him to California. Yeah. And then he was forced to let them go when California yeah. was like not a slave state. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And Broderick was a leader in California's anti-Lecompton Democratic faction that was anti-slavery and opposed to the exploitation of the working class by the rich and powerful. Nice. Terry believed that Broderick and the anti-Lecompton Democrats were dividing and ruining the Democratic Party. And that's why he didn't get reselected. 
for the Supreme Court. At the convention, Terry delivered a speech in which he accused the anti-Lecompton Democrats of being a miserable remnant of a faction flying under false colors. Instead of being independent men fighting against slavery, they were the personal followers of one man, the personal chattels of a single individual whom they are ashamed of. They They belong heart and soul, body and breeches to Senator David S. Broderick. They are ashamed to acknowledge their masters and are calling themselves, forsooth, Douglas Democrats. Perhaps they do sail under the flag of Douglas, but it is the banner of the black Douglas, whose name is Frederick, not Stephen. So, David Terry. So, what he's saying is, so Stephen Douglas was at the time one of the Democrats' nominees for the presidency. Mm He was running against Abraham Lincoln at the time. Mm -hmm. He's like, you guys aren't following him you're following frederick douglas that black guy jeez oh that is it's a roll of my eyes yeah on june 26 1859 while eating breakfast at the international hotel in san francisco roderick read a printed version of terry's speech because he hadn't been there in person while reading it broderick got so angry that he threw the paper and told dw Purley, a friend of terry's that i see your friend terry has been abusing me at sacramento That damned miserable wretch, after being kicked out of the convention, went down there and made a speech abusing me. I have defended him at times when all others deserted him. I paid and supported three newspapers to to defend him during the Vigilance Committee days. And this is all the gratitude I get from the damned miserable wretch for the favors I have conferred on him. I have hitherto spoken of him as an honest man, as the only honest man on the bench of a miserably corrupt court. But now I find I was mistaken. I take it all back. He's just as bad as the others. So then why wouldn't you go for another seat in another district? Yeah. Or I guess I don't, yeah, I'm not familiar with how they did it back in the day. but Yeah, I'm kind of confused how it all worked back in the day. And it seems like you were nominated by your party instead of like running for your... So that was the only seat that that party controlled then? Well, no, I think that he was just running for that seat because maybe that's just where... Maybe it's from where he's from. I don't know. I don't know how 1800s California Supreme, Supreme Court, Court justices were elected. Yeah. More yeah. on that to follow. Yeah. So word of what Broderick said about Terry made its way back to Terry. Terry wrote Broderick asking if he would retract his words. And Broderick wrote back and said he would not. So Terry formally challenged Broderick to a duel and Broderick accepted. The duel was to happen on September 12th near Lake Merced in San Francisco. The duel was heavily publicized, so on the morning of the duel, there were cops there to stop it from happening, since dueling was illegal in San Francisco. Hmm. They postponed until the next morning at the same spot. For some reason, there were no cops there the second day, so they went ahead with the duel. (laughs) Oh, glad we got that taken care of. Glad we fooled them. (laughs) No, the cops were like, oh, man, oh, yeah. glad we got that taken care of. Well, that's not going to happen. I saw Just them, a couple of hotheads. Yeah, I saw them whispering about maybe doing it tomorrow, but I'm sure that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So the next day, Roderick won the coin toss for choosing the position. Oh. Or his position. Who gets to shoot first? No, where he gets to, <laughs> where he gets to stand. Like into the sun or not? Yeah. <laughs> So he placed himself with his back to the sun. Terry got to pick the weapons, and he chose a set of French dueling pistols that he had been practicing with for months. When one of the seconds started counting, Broderick went to raise his gun and accidentally misfired it into the dirt. So Terry raised his gun and aimed right at Broderick's chest and fired. Broderick was hit in the chest and was whisked away for medical attention and died three days later. No. His funeral was attended by 25,000 people and Mm. was used as propaganda against pro-slavery Democrats in California. When Terry arrived back in Stockton after the duel, he found that people were extremely angry that he had killed Broderick. Hmm. Weird. You mean the guy that they elected over you? Well, they were... That was the thing. It's like Broderick was elected as a U.S. senator and not a Supreme Court justice. Like, they didn't even go for the same spot. Uh Terry just blamed him for it. Uh it's just, it's a whole convoluted mess. And people are like, that was a dumb reason to kill him. Yeah. We liked him. Yeah. And we definitely don't like you anymore. Yeah, exactly. So Terry decides to surrender himself to authorities and demand a trial. 
Because no witnesses were ever presented on either side, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Mm. Though he was found to be not guilty, the public opinion of him had greatly deteriorated. Mm -hmm. And now that he was not a judge, he went back to operating his own law practice, but people were very quick to choose him as their lawyer due to his reputation. He decided to head to Virginia City, Nevada to try his hand at mining again. He arrived in 1860. Those soft hands, they've been on the bench for too long. (laughs) He arrived in 1860 and claimed some property for his mining operation, but was again unsuccessful and left to go back to Stockton in 1862. Yeah, okay, can we talk about this for a second? Like, I've looked into what it takes modern day, like... To mine? Yeah. And, well, obviously there wasn't as many regulations back in the day as there was today. Barring, you know, the modern regulations against mining. Like, it's not like you're just like, oh, like, we know there's gold over here. And then you just, like, go over and a couple shovels full later, you've got, like, an ounce of gold. Like, you have to process it. And, like, it's just. Well, and I was, like, trying to read about his whole mining operation in Nevada and, like, first he was like, this is my claim. And someone's like, no, that's, I've already claimed that. And he's like, oh, my bad. And so he went somewhere else. <laughs> Until he finally got to the piece of land that nobody had claimed right. because there was then, not a high likelihood of right, finding gold there. was, there. like, no, and there was no water. Because there's science behind well, it. And there was no water on the land that he had claimed. Sure. And Which like, you don't necessarily need. No, but it does make it a lot easier. To process. So he dug a well, or he dug like 30 feet into the ground and still didn't hit water. And he was like, all right, I give up. I'm <laughs> going back to being a lawyer in California. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I've tried it before, and I had visions of grandeur where, you know, I get on Craigslist and I buy a sluice box from somebody, and you go find a claim or... Just go sit on the creek for a while and, and run some dirt through it and some water and bam, there's $3,000 worth of gold sitting in your sluice box on a Sunday afternoon. It's not how it works. No. Like, like, and especially now because like here in Idaho, there's a lot of like old. mines that or claims, mining claims that you can buy. A lot of them are for sale. But it is in my opinion that if the mining claim is for sale, there's, there's a reason. There's a reason for it, and that's that there's no gold there. There's no gold there. At yeah. least not anymore. Either that or the amount of processing it takes to get any gold out of it. It's not worth it. Not worth it. Yeah. yeah. So uh just a little tip for you. If it sounds too good to be true, like Probably is. Just because something says it's a mining claim doesn't mean that there's anything there to mine. <laughs> yes, yes. Do your research. Yeah. Take a take a geology class, learn about like the properties of gold and where you can find it and what it like what kind of like ores and rock types it likes to hang out in. Yeah. And, uh, you know what? For, for for that matter, just go earn a geology degree. <laughs> go to, go to school, earn a whole geology degree and then and then maybe and then probably get hired by like a USGS. huge corporation and <laughs> yeah, and actually work in a real gold mine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that has gold. Yeah. <laughs> the people spend a lot of time and money figuring out actually has gold. Yes. <laughs> uh so he goes back to Stockton, California. Sorry, that was a really long sidebar. It's okay. So, uh, so now what year are we in? Where he goes back in 1862. Okay. Um, but in February of 1863, he felt the need to return to his native south and join the Confederate Army. Because oh, now God. the Civil War is going on. Mm-hmm. And he's still a southern boy at heart. And feels like he mm-hmm. needs to go back and fight for the Confederacy. His older brother, Frank, was commanding the 8th Texas Cavalry Regiment. So he made his way towards Texas. On his way to Texas. So his brother just stayed in the army then? His brother, I don't think, ever didn't join the Texas Rangers or whatever he joined for that. Um, hmm. For the yeah. Texas independence. Mm-hmm. Um, he, sta- he stayed and actually ran the cotton plantation. Right, right. Um, at 17 years old. But now that the Civil War is going on, he is now part Turn. of the Confederate mm-hmm. army. Hmm. On David's way to Texas, he fell in with the Confederate Army and quickly rose up in the ranks until he was made Brigadier General of a brigade in Texas. Oh, jeez. How long did that take? It took him, like, I think a matter of months or, like, a year. Like, it did not take him long. I honestly think if we um, managed our militaries like that nowadays, 
I, too, would be a brigadier general. <laughs> As an almost lawyer. And then once I'm a lawyer, I'd probably be a lieutenant general. Yeah. Maybe even just a general. Well, I think <laughs> it was – I was reading it, the book, and – he, like, met somebody, and, like, as soon as he met him, he's like, yeah, I'll join you, but I want to be a major general. And the guy was like, what? No. Yeah. Mm, this isn't how this works. Yeah. <laughs> you're, he for, was, just for that, you're a private. Yeah. Yeah. The guy's like, you're in your 40s, and you've never, you don't really have any experience. And he's like, I fought in one battle before, and I stabbed a guy in the heart. And he's like, well, you still don't get to be major general. Yeah. What were your other occupations? Yeah. Uh, California Supreme Court Justice. How'd that work out for you? Yeah. What about, uh, oh, minor? You were a minor at one point? How'd that go? Oh, terrible? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Mm, yeah. Mm, best but, we could do is uh, corporal. Yeah. But apparently David found a guy that was like, no, you need to be a brigadier general. Yeah. And that's, yeah. When the war ended and the Confederacy was defeated, David didn't really know where to go. He was now, you know, the Confederacy didn't last. A wandering soul. Yeah. He, you know, left his law practice in California. Um, he's not very good at mining. Mm -hmm. So he decided to go to Mexico. And first he tried to establish a sheep farm there, but that did not go well. So then he tried to do a cotton farm. And then that also did not go well. Yeah. So after two failed growing seasons, David gave up and decided to go back to California. To be? In 1869. To be a lawyer. Oh, nice. <laughs> this just goes to show you, kids. If all else fails, become a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> That's so if easy. You can't be good at anything else. You can at least be a lawyer. <laughs> That's so easy a confederate could do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like those old Geico commercials. Yeah. And then he spent the next 10 years in Stockton building his reputation and practice back up. Jeez. People had kind of forgot who he was at that point, I imagine. Yeah, for the most part. He did try to run for another seat, and I don't remember what it was for. And at that time, when he was like up for election, people were like, hey, remember when he stabbed all those people or shot them, and then he also was in the Confederacy? I and, remember. And, and he killed that one senator that we liked? Yeah. And then people are like, oh, yeah, he's not such a great dude. And he lost his election. But yeah. as far as being a lawyer went, he did fairly Pepperidge good for Farms himself. Pepperidge Farms remembered. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. 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 So in 1883. That's a pop culture uh, reference yeah. for those of you that don't know. South Park. Yeah. In 1883, David was asked to represent a woman named Sarah Althea Hill. Sarah was in her late 20s and had been in a romantic relationship with 60-year-old silver millionaire and former U.S. Senator William Sharon. Sarah started off as Sharon's mistress, but the relationship grew and Sarah claimed that they had gotten married. When Sharon left her for another woman, Sarah sued for divorce and claimed that Sharon had committed adultery. However, Sharon countersued and said that the marriage certificate Sarah was producing was a forgery and they had never been married. Mm -hmm. The judge granted Sarah the divorce along with $2,500 a month in alimony, which is like $70,000 a month A month now. Jeez. Well, this guy was loaded. Yeah. And as his mistress, she was making $500 a month off of him. Jeez. Yeah. Sharon immediately filed a- So that's what, a, f that's what, a fifth? Mm-hmm. $70,000, which mm -hmm. is what, 30? It's like, it'd be still like $14,000. Yeah, a month. <laughs> could we could we get a divorce just for the purpose of each of us finding us as a, a like a respective sh sugar, sugar yeah, yeah. <laughs> sugar spouse yeah, and then we'll divorce them and get remarried. Sounds good to me. Just don't get a prenup. <laughs> Sharon immediately filed a petition in federal court to have the declaration of marriage pronounced a forgery and canceled. Sarah became increasingly upset while in federal court. She constantly sneered at witnesses and the examiner, and then started bringing her pistol into the courtroom. Mm. <laughs> and she's the reason why you can no longer carry weapons into <laughs> federal buildings. Uh, pretty, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> it all started with Sarah. During one witness's testimony, she pulled out her gun and said, They shall not slander me. I can hit a four-bit piece nine times out of ten. I will not shoot you just now unless you would like to be shot and think you deserve it. Eventually, the examiner was able to take the pistol away from her. You can't just wave pistols at witnesses. Yeah. One of the judges on the bench was Supreme Court Justice Stephen J. Field. 
He was hearing cases on the federal circuit while the Supreme Court was not in session. Apparently, that was a popular thing back mm-hmm. in the day, like when the Supreme Court was not in session in Washington, D.C., the Supreme Court justices would like travel across the United States and sit on federal courts. Justice Field ordered that Sarah be unarmed. Could you imagine that? Like having... Like, I think that's great. Like that's exactly I, what it. That's exactly what needs to happen. I think that would be really awesome if they still did that and yeah. like went to different states and actually different, heard well different districts. But, well, yeah. but yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think we need to bring that back. So you've got Justice Field ordered that Sarah be unarmed while in the presence of the examiner and witnesses, which seems really like reasonable. Really, with the thing. unstable yeah. lady. <laughs> yeah. The federal court then concluded that Sarah's declaration of marriage was a forgery and ordered her to surrender it for cancellation. While the court proceedings were still going on, Sharon died, and two weeks after the court's decision, David Terry and Sarah got married. David's wife had died almost two years earlier, and he had fallen in love with Sarah while acting as her attorney. Or probably that she likes to brandish weapons in courtrooms like he does. Yeah, he's like, God... So I did hot. it. I did. It, I did it with the David. <laughs> I did it with the Bowie knife once. But that when you pulled that pistol out on that witness, oh. ooh, doggy. <laughs> yeah, they're quite the couple. Yeah. David believed that because Sharon had died before the federal court's decision, Sarah didn't have to obey the order of canceling the marriage certificate. So she didn't. Hmm. Sharon's children were able to reduce her alimony from twenty five hundred to five hundred dollars a month. Which, I mean, she's still making like $14,000 a month in today's money. Uh, poor girl. But the state of California still recognized her marriage to Sharon as lawful. Because she never destroyed the certificate. marriage certificate. When the time for her to appeal the federal court's order of canceling the marriage certificate had expired, Sharon's children filed a petition to revive the order, which made Sarah have to appear back in federal court to produce the marriage certificate for cancellation. At court, Justice Field was reading his opinion of the case. Sarah stood up and said, Judge, are you going to take the responsibility of ordering me to deliver up that marriage contract? Justice Field simply told her to sit down. When she refused... she have her pistol with her? When she refused, Justice yeah. Field told the marshal to remove that woman from the courtroom. The court will deal with her hereafter. Sarah sat down and said, I won't go out and you can't put me out. When the marshal tried to grab her, she smacked him in the face and said, You dirty scrub, you dare not remove me from this courtroom. David stood up and said, No man shall touch my wife. Get a written order. The marshal replied, Judge, stand back. No written order is required. (laughs) And then David punched the marshal right in the mouth. Oh, jeez. A fight broke out, but eventually both David and Sarah were dragged out of the courtroom. A Bowie knife had been wrestled away from David, and a loaded <laughs> pis- and a loaded pistol was taken out of Sarah's purse. <laughs> oh my god! They were just like trying to set up their next like. I like that they four- like. This is like foreplay for them. I like-, like this is foreplay for them. That's what I'm imagining. I like that they like are very true to the weapons <laughs> that they like just stick to. Bowie knife and pistol. Yeah, they know what works for them. Yeah. They were both found guilty of contempt of court and sent mm. to prison. David mm-hmm. for six months and Sarah for one. David and Sarah filed petitions to revoke the contempt charges, but Justice Field denied it and wrote, Why did the petitioner come into court with a deadly weapon concealed on his person? He knew that as a citizen, he was violating the law which forbids the carrying of concealed weapons, and as an officer of the court, and all attorneys are such officers, was committing an outrage upon professional propriety and rendering himself liable to be disbarred. Therefore, considering the enormity of the offenses committed... And the position the petitioner once held in the state, which aggravates the offenses, the court cannot grant the prayer of this petitioner, and it is accordingly denied. Basically saying, you are a Supreme Court judge, you should know better. Yeah. He was like, oh, oh hell, I was packing then too. <laughs> no, he was. Yeah, oh, for sure. He definitely had his no, that's knife what I'm on saying. Him, he was saying, oh, hell, judge. I was packing then too. <laughs> I've always had a knife on me. Yeah. In this very court. (laughs) David and Sarah then appealed twice to the Supreme Court. Once for the order on Sarah to cancel her marriage certificate, and the other for them being imprisoned for contempt of court. 
Both appeals were denied. Once released from prison, both David and Sarah had letters published in newspapers that called the federal judges cowards and made death threats towards them. Why don't you come out here with your six-shooter and we'll settle this. <laughs> exactly. When it was time for Justice Field to make his rounds of the federal circuit again, so he went back to Washington, D.C. Now it's his break again. He's like, come on, please not. He's like, <laughs> I just imagine like they're pulling names out of a hat to see where they are going to go. He's like, oh, come on, please, not California. <laughs> Several people asked him to just skip the California circuit due to these death threats yeah. and what happened last time. Yeah. But he decided to go back to California. He was like, I'm not, I'm not scared. Yeah. I'll be fine. Yeah. The Attorney General had a United States Marshal named David Neagle appointed to protect Fields from any threats. He's like, well, if you're going to go, at least take this dude yeah. to protect you. Yeah. yeah. While on a train that was traveling to San Francisco and Los Angeles, Neagle saw David and Sarah boarding the train in Fresno during the middle of the night. Mm. Neagle informed Field, and Field replied, very well, I hope they will have a good sleep. Like He's just not bothered. There's a reason why they're crazy on crazy people <laughs> yes. boarding his train. Oh my gosh. I mean, California's smaller than it is today, but it's not that small, judge. Come no. on. Yeah, it's not I don't think it's a coincidence <laughs> that they're boarding the same uh, train you're on. Uh yeah, your honor, there's uh those two people, those two crazy people that you put in jail. Yeah. Contempt of court. That, uh, like, try to stab you and shoot you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, those people, they're on your train. They're here. <laughs> and he's like, ah, don't worry about it. And the marshal's like, ah, I'm going to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, like, literally, the attorney general appointed me to protect, to protect you from you. these people. Specifically, and they're here. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm telling you. The next morning, Neagle and Field went to have breakfast in the train station at Lothrop. Soon after they were seated at a table, David and Sarah also came into the station. When Sarah saw Justice Fields, she ran back to the train to get her purse. You mean her pistol? Yes. <laughs> David walked behind Justice Field and then slapped him on both sides of the face. I don't know if it was like both hands at once or a little <laughs> slappity slap back and forth. Neagle this, was. <laughs> this guy is a. Oh my gosh. Neagle yelled, Stop, stop, I am an officer. David glared at him and seemed to be reaching for his bowie knife. So Neagle shot David twice, killing him right there in the train station. Mm, finally. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah ran in and tried to grab the pistol out of her purse. She's like trying to yank it out of her purse while she's running. But the manager of the restaurant stopped her and took the purse that carried the loaded gun. Oh, ma'am, let us check that for you. <laughs> yeah. Upon examination, it appeared that David had been unarmed when Neagle shot him. Ooh. A rumor started circulating that Field had Neagle provoke David so that he had an excuse to shoot him. Like, California's small, but it's not that small, people. These people were clearly... There to hurt the justice. Yeah. He probably left his Bowie knife on the train. Yeah. Just like how Sarah had left her gun. It wasn't the courtroom. He wasn't packing. Yeah. They probably <laughs> accidentally left them in the bed because they yeah. had used them as, like... Yeah. Put them under their pillows. Nighttime activities. Ooh. Ooh. Both Field and Neagle were arrested for the murder of David Terry. What? <laughs> right? The attorney general appointed this guy to protect the judge. Yeah. From death threats. Yeah. Oh well, gosh. it didn't take long for Justice Field to be freed by the governor of California. The governor's like, we're not going to have a Supreme Court justice sitting here in our prison. We're not. We're not gonna do it. We're not. I'm not gonna have it. <laughs> he's out of here. Mm -hmm. But Neagle stayed because mm. he's just a U.S. marshal. A federal court did order Neagle's release, but California state argued that there was no specific statute that allowed a Supreme Court justice to have a bodyguard, and that the determination of Neagle's innocence should be left to local authorities. And the state, and so the state attorneys. Appeal to the United States the Supreme Court. The state AG appointed, right? No, it was the U.S. AG uh, appointed the marshal. Uh, so the state of California is like, what are you doing messing with our murder investigation or, you know. Right. Get out of my business, federal government. Yeah, it's basic, this, is, this is basically state, yeah. a state versus federal rights yeah, yeah. thing now is what they're saying. Yeah. Justice Fields recused himself from the case. 
was brought before the Supreme Court. Right. But he did help Neagle get a famous lawyer named Joseph Choate. The majority of the Supreme Court decided that in protecting Justice Fields against threats of violence, Neagle had been acting in pursuance of a law of the United States, and that federal officers are immune from state prosecution when acting within the scope of their federal authority, which is now known as Henry Neagle. Hmm. When Neagle was released, Justice Field gave- In Ray Neagle. In Ray Neagle. What'd you say? In Ray Neagle. <laughs> uh, it took me a minute to get you <laughs> to get there. what I was, I was like, actually saying. Just, yeah, just, just, yeah. In, In Ray Neagle. In Ray Neagle. Yeah. yeah. When Neagle was released, Justice Field gave him a gold watch that was inscribed- as a token of appreciation of his courage and fidelity to duty under circumstances of great peril. Mm-hmm. In 1892... Because that's what you do for people who save your life? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, thank you for saving my life. Um, uh, also, thanks for getting slapped in the face a couple times. Well, no, the justice got slapped in the face. Um, uh, thank you for spending all that time in prison. Yeah. Sorry I couldn't get you out sooner. Yeah. Uh, but thanks a lot, dude. Yeah. I'm glad we could uh, figure that out for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. In 1892, Sarah was committed to an insane asylum where she stayed for 45 years until she died. Wow. That's a long time. It's a long time. Hmm. And that's the story of David S. Terry, the insane Supreme Court justice that killed a lot of people. And also in Ray. And in Ray Neagle. In, in, in what? Neagle? Am I at least saying Neagle right? Niagle? Niagle. <laughs> Not what you're saying right now. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm assuming okay. I'm not. But yes, of the in Ray Neagle decision that federal officers, as long as they're. In the performance of their federal duties. Doing their job. Hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. Is this part of the series? Yeah. I don't so, think I'm going to say that, though. You're not going to. I'm going to be like, hey, we're doing the Supreme Court series. I don't think so. Okay. My sources for this story are Life of David S. Terry by Alexander E. Wagstaff. And that was the book that was written in like 1890 something. Mm-hmm. That it was, it was a rough one to get to, but it was like the most complete. What do you mean rough one to get to? I mean, it was like written in the late 1800s. Just like reading it, like how they worded some stuff. Mm. It was also a little dry. Here on twos. Yeah, a lot of here on twos. With their twos. <laughs> With their twos. <laughs> their two fours. Yeah. <laughs> um, Althea and the Judges by Brooks W. McCracken. The Duel by K. Maldetto. And The Public City by Philip J. Ethington. Huh. Um, are you ready for to figure out who is the only president other than George Washington to run unopposed? Yes. It was James Monroe in the election of 1820. Nice. So a few presidents. Yeah. The collapse of the Federalists left Monroe with no organized opposition at the end of his first term, and he ran for re-election unopposed, the only president other than Washington to do so. A single elector from New Hampshire, William Plumer, cast a vote for John Quincy Adams, preventing a unanimous vote in the Electoral College. He just wanted to be a rebel. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He knew he wasn't getting anywhere. He just yeah. wanted to be different. Yeah. yeah. He's, his name's brought up in history now. Yep. That's that one guy. He's in our podcast now. That guy. He will forever live in infamy. <laughs> in the worldwide interwebs. Yep. Well, we want to thank you guys for sticking around after we took our Yeah, tuning back break. in. Yeah. Tuning back Thanks in. Thanks for coming back. and yeah. Hope you re-enjoyed the holiday re-releases that we had. Yeah, our way throwbacks. Yeah. And despite all of the crummy audio we, start, we started with, yeah. we're learning and we're trying to get better and do better for your guys' ears. For y'all's. For y'all's ears. <laughs> so... We hope you guys stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay stay weird, America. America.